Welcome to the radio ministry of Cedar Grove United Methodist Church. May God fill you and transform you through the work of the Holy Spirit. Now for some music and then Pastor Brian Bowling. gospel reading this morning is from Matthew, the fifth chapter. We're continuing with the Sermon on the Mount here. So we're starting in verse 21. Jesus is speaking. You have heard it said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and, have, and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. And then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court. Do it while you're still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and then the judge will hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown in prison. Truly I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. 
You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in, her, in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It's been said anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it's God's throne, or by the earth, for it's his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Today, we have Jesus continuing his Sermon on the Mount, this is part three. A bit of background. There were people who thought that because Jesus spent time with the outcasts of society, he had decided that the law of Moses was no longer valid. And this was a very critical point, for there were three things which made a man Jewish. First, could he trace his ancestry back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in particular? Could he claim descent from Jacob, the man that God had renamed Israel? Second, was the man circumcised? Now, this was a critical issue at the time because it was a sign of devotion to God and God's law. And third, did the man try his best to follow the law of Moses? This was the most visible public sign that a man considered himself Jewish, for ancestry could be difficult to prove, and circumcision was a private matter. But how a man acted in public was public. Now, it was well known that, the, that men and women had tremendous difficulty in following the law. Everyone accepted that this was difficult. In particular, it was recognized that children could not follow the law until they understood the law. And therefore, most male children were taught about the law until they were about 14 or 15 years old. It was the primary thing they studied, how to read and write the law. When they turned 14 or 15, they were considered a full adult. And so there was then, just like today, a question about whether Jesus had come to abolish the law, doing away with it totally. Of course, this continues to be a question for modern audiences. Did Jesus come to do away with the law? We heard last week Jesus say very specifically that he had not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And what does this mean? Well, you see, the purpose of the law was threefold. 
First, it was to provide a series of standards of behavior which would allow the Israelites to live harmoniously together. The Israelites at this time were a people who had formerly been slaves in Egypt. Now, a slave does not have any sort of objective standard to determine what's right and wrong. For slaves have to do what their master says. If the master or overseer says to work hard, the slave must work hard. If the master tells the slave to steal or to fight another or even to murder another, then the slave must do this. And it's much the same today for people in slavery to sin. For example, if someone is a slave to a chemical like heroin or alcohol, the chemical tells them what they must do to have the drug. And so, if you are one of these slaves, you'll do whatever that chemical master tells you to do. You'll steal, you'll sell your body, you'll skip work, you'll even murder for your chemical master. For you are a slave, and the only standard of behavior is to do what your chemical master says to do. And you know, the same thing applies to any sort of, slave, any sort of sin to which we are enslaved. But the law gave the ancient Israelites and us today a set of behavior standards given by God by which we could know whether or not we were behaving properly. The second purpose of the law was to show people that we were imperfect. We were damaged, incapable of voluntarily doing what God asked of us. The law was not just the Ten Commandments. There were 613 commandments. But if we just look at the Big Ten, have you ever stolen anything, even so much as a pencil or a paper clip from someone? Have you ever coveted? That's the tough one, number nine there. Which means, have you ever desired to have your neighbor's new pickup? or your neighbor's new home, or a new big screen television? Have you ever desired a ring, like a two-carat diamond ring that you see a movie star wearing? Or how about, the, how about desiring the chance to travel to nice vacations in nice places? Or for those of us who have to watch our sugar intake, have you ever desired that big slice of chocolate cake that your friend has for dessert? Well, Jesus came along and he showed the people that God's law applies not only to the actions that they do, but even to our thoughts. Jesus said, you may have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, Jesus said, that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Have you ever thought that being angry is the same as murder in God's eyes. Remember, he sees not only the actions, but he sees our thoughts. It makes sense when we consider that the only thing that has kept a lot of murders from happening is the knowledge that we would be caught and punished. What is the real moral difference, after all, between someone who is so angry that he or she thinks about killing his neighbor in his mind, and the man who actually pulls the trigger. The only difference, you see, is a measure of self-control or maybe cowardice. 
probably brought on by the sure, certain knowledge of punishment. In the last ten years, you may have heard of a film and television series called The Purge. It imagines a nearly crime-free America where there's one new law that has been passed. Once a year, for 12 hours, all crimes, including murder, are allowed. For 12 hours, people can commit any crime without any fear of arrest or punishment. And of course, the result is terror for those 12 hours. For all the pent-up anger and resentment, all the envy and covetousness comes out in a furious time of killing and looting and savagery. This is what happens when there's no fear of punishment. We let what was in our mind go into our actions. Jesus pointed out that God's standard for the law is, to not, is for us to not even become angry with another. We are to learn that self-control. We are to train our minds so we don't become angry at other people. The thoughts are as important as the action. And Jesus continues this. Those who are older may remember back in 1976 when Jimmy Carter, running for president, gave an interview to Playboy magazine. And in it he was asked if he'd ever committed adultery. And referring to today's passage, he said he had committed adultery in his heart because he'd looked at a woman with lust. For Jesus tells us that merely thinking those thoughts is the same as committing adultery. And of course today our television shows and our movies lead us to break that commandment. For God cares about our thoughts as well as our deeds. Yes, the law's second purpose was to show us that we could not keep from breaking the commandments. And Jesus made sure we understood that controlling our actions wasn't good enough. But we had to learn to control our thoughts as far as God was concerned For God knew that a person who thinks evil, a person who thinks evil thoughts, needs a very little push to act upon those evil thoughts. And so Jesus emphasizes this in this passage, that following the law perfectly is a very, very strict thing. But there was a third purpose, and that purpose of the law was to allow Jesus to walk on the earth and show us that he could do it. He could follow the law perfectly. And thus he fulfilled the law. For we could look at him and see his perfection and realize the tremendous difference between us and him. For when we have perfection standing in front of us, every imperfection in our lives becomes glaringly obvious to us. And we know then, that we must worship Jesus as the Son of God, God walking upon the earth. We have to recognize that he is the only ruler that we could trust to follow. The God-man who will always be good, who will always be right, who will always love us and do what is best for us even when we don't expect it, even when our evil thoughts are bubbling over like a kettle full of green mush. Jesus sets the high standard that we cannot live up to. But he sets the standard that we have to learn to imitate, however poorly. 
He shows us what it means to be holy and just and good. Jesus shows us what the law truly leads us to. And thus Jesus fulfills the law. The Pharisees of Jesus' day, they understood the law very well. They studied it daily, they memorized it, they debated it, and that was their problem. They used their fine legal minds to look for loopholes, the ways to get around the law, to find ways where they could say that they were still following the law, even when they really weren't. For example, they gave all sorts of rules regarding the keeping of oaths, that swearing by one thing was binding, but swearing by something different was less binding and could be broken in these situations. But Jesus said simply, don't swear oaths. Simply let your yes mean yes and your no mean no. In other words, just be honest all the time. Do what you say you're going to do or, or not going to do. Have integrity. Much the same happened with the observation of the Sabbath. Tremendously detailed rules developed from the original simple command of don't do work on the Sabbath or have anybody in your household do work. What if water needed to be drawn from the well? You've got to get in the water, right? Well, a woman couldn't do it on the Sabbath because that was woman's work. But a man could do it. The timing of the Sabbath was specified to the exact minute. It, on Friday evening, at this point, the Sabbath begins when the sun sets, and this is what it means for the sun to set. And on Saturday evening, the Sabbath ends at this particular time, and you know they're different. One is when you see first light. One is when you can tell two stars. It's different. More modern rules. Elevators in buildings in New York or Tel Aviv, where Orthodox Jews live, have elevators that are battery-powered on the Sabbath because somewhere, someone must be doing work to generate electricity on the Sabbath. Many cooking ovens have special Sabbath settings, yours might actually have it, to allow food to be cooked on Friday afternoon and remain hot through Saturday. And Jesus' disciples were called out by the Pharisees one Sabbath because they were walking through a field and they were rubbing grain off the stalks of grain that they picked and then they were eating the grain and the Pharisees said that's harvesting and that's work and they shouldn't be doing it. Yet you know those very same Pharisees considered it okay to divorce a woman for any reason, leaving her destitute, if they would only write up a certificate of divorce. The rules of the culture said that a woman could not divorce a man. A woman was committed for life to her husband. Only men could divorce women, and they could divorce the woman for any reason, including burning supper. You see... The rules were made in such a way that the Pharisees making the rules could say that they were perfect. They'd given a certificate of divorce. But they were really trying to find loopholes that allowed them to break the law without saying they were breaking the law. Jesus said, in effect, don't divorce a woman unless you have a very, very strong reason like infidelity for it will lead her into a life of poverty or worse. And so if the law was so stringent that someone broke the law simply by thinking evil thoughts, who could avoid breaking the law? Who could be good enough that God would allow him or her into heaven? Who was righteous? Even today, who can be righteous if the requirements of the law are so high? 
If perfection of thought is asked for as well as perfection of action. After all, I don't think we have anyone in the congregation who has murdered another in action. But who hasn't at some point in our lives? Who hasn't thought about killing another? Maybe that bully back in high school or the queen bee in middle school. Who hasn't desired something of their neighbor, coveted? Who has never lusted after a television or movie star? Where is our hope? How can we be good enough for heaven to stand in front of a perfect God who hates all sin? Our hope comes from Jesus, the one who fulfilled the law. I want you to imagine a bachelor who is very, very neat. He is super neat. He can... He controls his home, his environment, and everything in the home has its place. You don't find anything laying on the floor out of place. All the trash is in the trash can. The dishes are in the dishwasher every evening, and then the dishwasher is run. The dirty clothes go into the hamper. This is not like my son or like I was when I was that age, but you know that you can imagine a guy like this. He does laundry every Saturday morning. He hangs up the clothes five minutes after the dryer finishes. And a cleaning lady comes in every Thursday. It's the easiest job she has because he is so neat and tidy. She vacuums and dusts a bit and wipes the dust off the mirrors. She washes the windows four times a year. His neatness puts her to shame. And there are no pets. No dog, no cat, not even a goldfish, because you see, pets create messes, and he doesn't want the hassle or the mess. He doesn't want the smell of the cat food or the dog food. He doesn't want the allergens in the air. He particularly doesn't want damage to the furniture or to the carpet. It's a rule that he has made for himself and he lives by. No pets, because pets aren't neat and tidy, and that's how he wants his life. And so it's easy for him to live by this rule. And then one day, one day the bachelor meets a woman and gets married to her. She's also neat and tidy, just as he is. And then a couple years later comes along a little boy, their son. He dotes on that little boy. And one day when the child is four years old, the child walks outside and there is this skinny, bedraggled, stray kitten. And the kitten... It's not anything special. It's just another kitten that's starving. And, but the little boy looks at the kitten and says, Come here, kitty, kitty, kitty. And the kitten is just smart enough to walk over to that little boy. Jumps into his arms. Of course, the little boy takes the kitten inside and says, Well, you know what he says. Daddy, can I have this kitten? Can I keep it? And then he looks up at the man with the big eyes. The big eyes that only little boys have. And of course, you know what the man says. Okay, but you'll need to feed it and clean the litter box and clean up its messes. You reckon, you know what's going to happen there. And so the kitten's allowed into the house. It's a pretty typical kitten. It claws the fine furniture and it's got a stinky litter box and it's got stinky food and it barfs up the occasional furball. And the little boy does his best to keep up with the kitten, but the kitten still makes messes and the house is no longer so neat and tidy. But of course the man loves the little boy 
even though he hates the cat and the messes it makes. But because of his love for the little boy, the cat is allowed to live in the man's house. The man is God the Father. The child is Jesus, God's son. And we are God's kittens. It's because of the son's love for us and the love of God for the son that we are allowed in God's house. We aren't particularly good kittens. We do make stinky messes and we tear up the furniture and we do all sorts of things that we shouldn't do. Maybe as we grow older, we'll stop making those messes as often as we become uh, litter trained. But God lets us into heaven because we're just smart enough to put our trust in God's Son and jump into His arms. We don't get into heaven by following the law. No one has ever followed the law well enough to be allowed into heaven. We don't make it to heaven because of how good we are. We get into heaven despite how bad we are. It isn't what we do, it's who we know and who loves us. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The only action we control in this whole thing is whether to run from Jesus or to walk over and jump into his arms. That is our hope. We get into heaven because of how good Jesus is, not how good we are. Our only choice in the matter is to choose not to be a wild, feral creature, but we have to choose to follow Jesus. And then perhaps over many years, we will learn the rules of the house and get better and better at following them. And those rules of the house are known of the law of Moses, and following them is called walking the path of holiness. Following them is something we should work to learn to do. Following them helps us live a better life of harmony with others both other people and with God, it doesn't affect whether we go to heaven or not, but only our life and our souls. Following the law is how we become holy and choose life. But we learn to follow the law by following Jesus. So if you will, join me now and accept the grace of Christ.
Grove United Methodist Church and Pastor Brian Boley would like to thank you for listening to last week's pre-recorded sermon. Join us live this Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. and on Facebook. We are located on Route 47, a mile and a half east off I-77, just across from WVU Parkersburg campus. Donations may be mailed to Cedar Grove UMC, 168 Old Turnpike Road, Parkersburg, West Virginia, 26104. Or you can text the word GIVE to 1304-244-1903 or visit our website, cedargroveunitedmethodist.org and click on the GIVE tab. This will bring up a form where you can determine how much you would like to give. Thank you and God bless you in your life.